Well, then let's uh, turn again to Daniel and chapter 3. Page 1021 in the Church Bible, 1021, Daniel chapter 3. And verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. Now there's a very obvious connection between the second and third chapters of this book. They're both dominated by an image. Of course, in chapter 2, the image is one that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dreams. Uh, In this one, we have an image that Nebuchadnezzar proceeds to build, and it keeps being repeated in the chapter that it is an image that he set up. There are certain things repeated quite often in the chapter, and uh, we'll see why that's so, but one of them is that Nebuchadnezzar set the image up. And the fact that he did set it up is quite a surprise when you consider everything that Nebuchadnezzar had learned or ought to have learned in chapter 2. If he had really understood the message of chapter 2, the significance of the kingdoms of the earth passing away and God's kingdom coming, and remaining forever, if he had understood all that, we wouldn't be reading chapter 3. But we do read it. And for the next couple of weeks, God willing, I want to focus with you on this image and uh, see what, with God's help, we learn from the narrative. First of all, just the basic facts about the image. Its size is 60 cubits by 6, which translates into our measurements as 90 feet by 9. It is an unusual ratio of 10 to 1. It's not very stable in that respect, and I don't know why. The Babylonians were very good engineers, so I'm not sure why the image is like this, unless there is a deeply symbolical reason for it. Symbolic reason, uh, maybe it included the pedestal on which the image stood. I don't know. We're told that it was made of gold. That doesn't necessarily mean that it was all made of solid gold. It was not usual for golden images to be solid gold. In fact, Isaiah the prophet gives us, in one of his prophecies, a vivid description of the making of an idol. And there he describes one that is clearly gold-plated. And even the golden altar that Israel had in the tabernacle, which is always called the golden altar, was actually made of wood and plated with gold. Now, if this uh, image was solid gold, it's very difficult to conceive uh, just of how much gold uh, is involved in it. Although, in fairness, the Babylonian Empire in chapter 2 was pictured as a head of gold, so it was stupendously wealthy. But nonetheless, it's more than likely that it was essentially wood with a thick 
uh, plating of gold. The image is obviously very important. So its dedication was important. And for its dedication, it was set up in the plain of Jura. There's no clear consensus amongst archaeologists where that was. The best contender is a plain that's about six miles southeast uh, of the ruins of Babylon. It, it is interesting that there are several mounds in that plain. There's one particular mound that's around 48 feet by 20 with the outline of bricks on top of it. And some have suggested that that may have been the pedestal on which the statue stood, but that's conjecture, so we just leave it there. But it was in a plane for a reason, because at the dedication of the image, Nebuchadnezzar wanted every government official to attend. And they attended from all the provinces. We're told in the decree that the herald issued that they came from every quarter of the empire, all the languages and all the peoples. And there's an extensive list of the kind of government officials that come. It includes the judiciary as well as the executive. Um, seven, I think six or seven distinct levels of government. And they're all present. Some have thought that there may have been thousands of people at the dedication of the image. And um, considering the size of the plain and the purpose of the plain, it's more than likely that the city largely gathered to witness this too. Although the dedication was for the officials and the officials were to bow, it's more than likely that those who lived in the city were probably to follow their example. But it's the government that mattered. Now, I don't know exactly what these government officials expected when they turned up at the dedication of the image, but it certainly becomes plain eh, once they do. Because a herald stands up and he issues a decree. When the orchestra plays, and the instruments there are wind and string, then everyone is to bow down before the image. And of course, uh, as most of you know, they all do, with the exception of the three Hebrews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and here they're given their Babylonian name. The, this part of the Bible is actually written in Aramaic. The whole of the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, with the exception of these chapters that contain such profound messages to the nations, and they're given their Babylonian names. Everybody knows this story really well. Everybody who knows something about the Bible and uh, children know this story. Uh, but it's very important that we all understand what's going on. It's not simply a matter of being faithful to God. Of course, that's what's at the heart of it. But also in here is a lesson about government, a lesson about the abuse of power. And all these things are important in the day and age in which we live too. Um, of course, if you disobeyed this decree, you were to be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Now, these are just the basic facts about the image, but the difficulty comes when we try to interpret them. What does the image really mean? What is its purpose? 
In the light of the book of Daniel as a whole and in the light of its overt religious symbolism, what's going on here? And what does it say to us? Well, I think we can begin uh, where we really began the sermon, and that's by noting that the writer of the book, Daniel himself, more or less places the two images together, the image of chapter 2 and the image of chapter 3. And I think it's more than likely that these two images are connected in Nebuchadnezzar's own mind. The dream that he saw in chapter 2 made a great impression on him at the time. You remember that he had been anxious about it. He was losing sleep about it. He felt it was a communication from another world. And he received the content of the dream in an unusual way from a young Hebrew man. And he received the interpretation of it. It's probably the first time that Nebuchadnezzar had really come face to face with the power of God in his life. I think he had probably concluded long ago that the Chaldeans around him had no real knowledge of another world. It was convenient for the system just to function as it was. But that didn't explain this. The fact that this young Hebrew man was able to tell him what he had actually dreamed and able to tell him its significance. And when you encounter God like that for the first time, it's a startling thing. Of course it is. It doesn't necessarily mean you're converted. Some of you know that very well here today because you're still not converted. And it's not because God hasn't spoken to you. It's not because he hasn't communicated to you. It's not because you've never seen any evidence of the reality of God in your life or in somebody else's life. It's just because you choose to harden yourself against it, which we'll see in a moment. The impression made on Nebuchadnezzar must have been great because he's a proud man. I mean, if there's, if there's one thing in his life that really comes to the fore in the, in the book, it's his pride. Chapter 4 focuses on it, the pride of Nebuchadnezzar. But yet he fell prostrate at the feet of a young Hebrew man. Took a lot for him to do that. He must have been awed at the time. Awed at the sense of God's knowledge and God's presence. But here he is building an image and dedicating it in chapter 3. How do we understand that? Well, I think we're to see it in a twofold light. First of all, we're to see it as an act of defiance. It's an act of defiance. And by that I mean this, that in chapter 2, the clear message was that all earthly kingdoms are finite. They have their time, they rise, and then they fall. And that included his own. The golden head of the image, the Babylonian Empire, was to give way to a silver empire. And unless God is somehow at the heart of a kingdom, then it will be smashed. And like chaff, it will be blown away. 
That was the message of chapter 2. There is only one kingdom that matters, beginning like a stone and growing into a mountain. Now, if Nebuchadnezzar had sense, he would have focused on the stone. He would have focused on who or what the stone really represented. Daniel told him it was a kingdom, but the kingdom was identified with its king. Who was the stone? How would the kingdom of God come into the world? And was it possible for himself, even though he belonged in another era, was it possible to be part of the kingdom of God? Was it possible to be part of it in such a way that he at least personally would never be struck and destroyed by the stone? Can I know this king? Can I belong to this kingdom? Can I be safe with this king and with this kingdom? And if he had asked that question, Daniel could easily have answered him. Daniel could have quoted from him, for him a psalm that he knew from his childhood. Be wise, be taught, you kings, you judges of the earth. Kiss the sun, lest you perish. Yes, there is a way. Even now, you can come to know this King of Kings and this Lord of Lords. Even now, as King of Babylon, you can become a subject of King Jesus. You can become a believer in God and be a member of this kingdom that will endure and last forever. <clears throat> Daniel doesn't really elaborate too much on what the, what the dream means. God's providence is in that. I mean, God sometimes speaks to you and then he leaves off speaking to you. And uh, maybe it's an invitation to yourself to, to do something about it. Okay, God comes into your life and you're struck by it. And maybe you somehow, in some respect, prostrate yourself before him. But what do you do next? What do you do next? You're in hospital, sick, and you think you'll change and reform. Fine. And you maybe say something in your prayer about, well, if I live longer, then I'll do this and I'll do that. Fine. You got out of hospital. And what did you do next? That's what matters, is it? Not what you do next. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar does next. He thinks long and hard about the dream. And instead of focusing on the stone, he focuses on the statue. And why it's smashed. And I suppose it concludes that the statue smashed because the stone struck on the feet. And the feet were composite iron and clay. And Daniel specifies that the iron and the clay was a confusion caused by mingling among the seeds of men. There was something inherent in the government that was very, very weak. And so Nebuchadnezzar concludes, well, the key to successful kingships and kingdoms is strength. It's muscle power. And if I strengthen my kingdom, if I make it one, if I bind it together, I will endure as long as I live and my kingdom will endure forever. And so the action of setting up an image 
is designed to weld the kingdom together, all its parts, all its provinces, its diverse languages and its diverse peoples make them one and use the power of the image to do that. This raises an interesting question, which the Bible itself doesn't answer, so we can't be dogmatic about it. Was the image an image of Nebuchadnezzar himself? I would suggest, and I'm only suggesting, I would suggest that it was for two reasons. First of all, all tyrants everywhere have always done this. Look at it yourself. Look at the history of any tyrannical government where power is in the hand effectively of one person and you'll notice that they reproduce images of themselves. You'll remember too that uh, when Daniel was interpreting the dream, he said to Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. So for Nebuchadnezzar, the empire was himself. He was the empire. So the image is not just about perpetuating his kingdom. It's about perpetuating himself. Living forever. My kingdom living forever. So the image of gold is meant to be strength, stability, perpetuating something that God had said would come to an end. And that's defiance. It is defying the ordinance of God. It's defying the judgment of God. But that kind of defiance is common to us all. As sinful people, we always do it. I mean, God's announced judgments for you too. God has said that the soul that sins, it shall die. God has said that if we die unrepentant, we shall be condemned and condemned to hell. But yet we defy that judgment in so many different ways. The attempts to extend human life by genetics or even cryogenics, the freezing of the body until scientific advance is to such a degree that whatever disease it was that caused the body to die can be dealt with and we can effectively resurrect. Well, these attempts to extend life by genetics and cryogenics are an attempt, really, to defeat the ordinance of God and the judgment of God. I mean, there is, I was thinking about this recently, but um, all these ideas that we can one day effectively live as cyborgs being essentially minds embodied in a, in a machine-like form, are an attempt to live forever on this earth. These things are, are a defiant way of saying to God, we can live, we can live, and we can defeat death. Whereas God has told us, not simply that the soul that sins it shall die, he has also told us that the seed from which we are conceived is corruptible seed. The only incorruptible seed comes with a new birth. When God effectively regenerates you so that you become a new creature through the power of the Holy Spirit, that is the incorruptible seed. When you become a born-again person, you'll never die. 
as Jesus said to Martha, he that believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And that's well worth believing. A regenerate person shall never die. But if you've simply been generated as opposed to regenerated, you will die. Your seed is corruptible. Genetics may do what it can. It may prolong your life for another hundred years, and it probably will. As far as I understand the prophecies of Isaiah, such a day will come when it will be unusual to die under a hundred years of age, when there will be no infant mortality. These days may well come, but you won't defeat death by it. You won't defeat the judgment of God. It is still true that the soul that sins shall die. Again, you defy God simply by believing that uh, you, you can just go on in your own life, even if, even if you think there is a death. Well, God warns you and he speaks to you. you. Maybe you have a close shave with death or something of that kind, but you just shrug it off as though you never met it, as though God never spoke to you. Isaiah rebukes Judah for making covenants with death and hell. It's a strange thought, making a covenant with death and hell. He describes it in the context of um, God telling Judah that they were coming under serious judgment from the north. And to try to get round that, Judah was busy trying to enter into a covenant with Egypt to strengthen herself, to protect herself against Assyria in the north or later Babylon in the north. And he says it's a covenant with death and hell. It's a waste of your time. It's worse than a waste of your time. You cannot escape the judgment of God, making fig leaves of our own righteousness so that we can stand before God. Waste of time. You can't defy the word of God like that. You can't defy God. God reproving us often and hardening our necks against it. The book of Proverbs says that that's like an ox going to the slaughter. You'll be destroyed without remedy. Defiance. And you'll notice that this defiance becomes a determined defiance. Because the man who fell on his face, prostrate before God, is now building an image, possibly, of himself. It was a humbling, all right, that he got. And he did humble himself, but only partially and only temporarily. By the time we come here to chapter 3 and then in chapter 4, he's full of pride again. I've seen proud people brought low. And I've seen them brought low by God's providence. And I've seen them brought low for a time. And that time is a time of opportunity to really seek the Lord and to really turn to the Lord. When God actually stripped you, he took away your wealth maybe. He took away your status in the eyes of people. Maybe he exploded your family. He allowed your marriage to disintegrate. Whatever. Whatever. But you were brought low by it. You didn't quite walk as proudly as you walked before. And it was a time for you that. It was a time to seek the Lord. And it was a time when the Lord spoke to you. But you refused to accept a message from God. And not only so, but pride reasserted itself. 
It went out for a minute, but when it came back, it was sevenfold worse than perhaps it was before. Is that you? So it's an act of defiance. He didn't accept God's message in chapter 2. I can live and my kingdom can live forever. Second, as well as being an act of defiance, it's an act of deification. You could say self-deification. Making himself a god or making the state a god. Sometimes both come together. You'll notice that the allegiance required in bowing before the image is total allegiance. Total allegiance. In other words, you are to bow before this image in a way that gives yourself to it. Uh, Whatever the image represents, either Nebuchadnezzar personally or his kingdom, probably both, you are entirely theirs. Total allegiance. That's how it's perceived by everybody present. In other words, bowing down to it was not a bowing down of the kind that perhaps you would do in the presence of the sovereign. Maybe you would bow or curtsy or something to that effect, the acknowledgement of a superior, which appears in the Bible. There is such a thing as bowing down before a superior, but that's not the issue here. I mean, if that was the issue, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have no difficulty with that. They have, they have no difficulty with paying the common civil courtesies that were to be paid to rulers. No difficulty with it at all. Obviously, there was more than that involved. It was the recognition of the image or the recognition of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon as being everything. We owe them our absolute allegiance. They are more important than truth, than integrity, than righteousness, than family, everything. We yield them total allegiance the allegiance that belongs to God alone. So the king claims supreme authority and he demands your total allegiance. The state claims supreme authority and therefore demands your total allegiance. That's the problem that our forefathers, the Covenanters and Reformed Presbyterians historically had with the oath of allegiance even in this nation itself. The oath of allegiance in recent years has been trimmed down. Uh, It's now quite bare. But it used to be very, very full. It used to be a page of A4. And when you read it, you realize that you are giving an allegiance to a monarch that you ought only to give to God. So we have to be very careful with oaths and with oaths of allegiance. Now you'll notice that humanistic states tend to follow this pattern. It may take them a while to get there, but they always tend to follow this pattern. Humanistic states erode the other government institutions that God has appointed, notably the family. The family is the primary or the foundational government institution that God has appointed. But a humanistic state will erode the power of the family. 
it will also proceed to erode the authority of the church. Um, there are checks and balances, of course, in all these, but a humanistic state will take away the family's power and it will take away the power of the church. You'll notice that our own states are busy doing that. When we have debates about um, marriage or the power of church in marriage, or we have debates about children and how to discipline children, you may think these are just debates about an issue or about what the best way is of raising your family or whether you can use physical chastisement or so on. They are not debates about an issue. They are a debate about who is Lord and who is God. What right does the state have to tell you as a parent of a child that you cannot administer physical chastisement when God in his word tells you that you can and that you may, that you must. No right whatsoever. It is a godlike power that is being exerted. And it gradually comes to be exerted by humanistic states because the state gradually becomes everything. It provides your money. It provides your health. And you take these things gratefully, but then it snatches your freedoms. One by one by one. And you're hardly aware that they're being lost. Why? Because you've got plenty of money and, and it's not difficult to have sexual liberty. Someone once wrote, and I can't, I've been trying to find out where I read this, and I used to have a terrible habit of not taking notes of where I found things, but I remember reading a while back that people will almost relinquish any freedoms, providing they have plenty of money, and sexual freedom. And as long as they have these two things, they don't realize that all their other freedoms are disappearing. How true that is. How true that is. But here this state is bringing everything under its own control. Uh, you'll notice too that even states that are supposed to be for the people, avowedly socialistic, or communistic, the same phenomenon appears. And the, um, the head of such states take increasingly divine honors and titles to themselves. <clears throat> you see, when you live in a tyranny, it's easy to see this kind of thing. It's easy to see it because in a tyranny, of course, power is unchecked. So the person just absorbs it to himself or herself. It's a bit more checked in a democracy where you don't really notice the powers disappearing into the state. Caesar eventually became God, did he not, in Rome? The Japanese emperor became God. It can even happen inside a visible church. The power of man came to the fore in Roman Catholicism. The Pope was given titles, names, honours that should never be given to any man, whether inside the church or outside the church. And you'll notice here in verse 15, notice what, notice what Nebuchadnezzar actually says when he's really furious. Um, 
At the end of verse 15, he is so angry with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but in the very last sentence of verse 15, he says, Who is the God that will deliver you from my hands? Now, you could say that with these words, the cat is well and truly out of the bag. Because there's lots of gods in Babylon, and they're all allowed to function on a level playing field. They're all allowed to... Do you remember going back to chapter 1, how the vessels of the holy temple in Jerusalem were brought into the temple in Babylon, stationed there, with all the holy vessels that had come from other nations and peoples? That's fine. Humanism will tolerate religion, providing Nebuchadnezzar sits over them all. And this verse tells you that he's over them all. Which God, he says, amongst all the gods in Babylon and elsewhere, including your gods, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which God shall deliver you from my hand? See what I mean about the cat being out of the bag? Who's really God here? He is. Man is. That's what I meant. When we opened the series on Daniel with the Tower of Babel and the first building of Babylon in Genesis chapter 11, the original idolatry is humanism and the ultimate idolatry is humanism. Man at the heart of government, man at the heart of culture, man at the heart of religion, man. It's all about man. It's all about you. In my sinful life, it's all about me. In your sinful life, it's all about you, you, you. Not God. If God doesn't rule, then you do. So in the pantheon of all the Babylonian gods, it's Nebuchadnezzar that uh, reigns supreme. And um, this humanistic element comes to the fore sometimes in subtle ways. Now, we have to be a little careful here. Numerology is... um, an interesting thing in the scripture. Numbers have symbolic value. There's no doubt about that. We're familiar with seven as being um, completion, eight as being renewal, 12 government, 40 probation. These are well-known numbers. Six, of course, is known to be the number of man and uh, humanism too. And it's interesting that six is the number in Babylon, or 60 is the number in Babylon. It's a sexagesimal system that they used, not a decimal system. It didn't revolve around the number 10. It revolved around the number six or 60. And 60 itself is a fascinating number. It's divisible by every number from one to five. It's broken down very easily into segments of 30, 20, 10, or five. And this Babylonian system has carried through, and we use it still, clock on the wall there uses it. Every minute is broken up into 60 seconds. Why? Because of Babylon. Every hour is broken up into 60 minutes. Why? Because of Babylon. Their astronomy was full of it. Maths was full of it. If you look at your protractor in school, it's Babylon. 360 degrees, 180, 60 times 3, the three angles of a triangle, 180. It's all based around the number six. 
And in symbolic passages, we have to be aware of that too. The first, uh, one of the first great symbols of the anti-Christian power in the Bible was Goliath, the head of the principalities and powers, whom David, the type of Christ, slew unexpectedly with the power of a little stone, remember, took down this giant. But Goliath of Gath is six cubits high, six pieces of armor, and the weight of his spear is 600 shekels. You notice the predominance of the number six as the influence of Babel reaches down through history. Here, this statue is 60 cubits high uh, by six cubits wide. That's why, uh, by the way, when translations <coughs> are modernized, as they should be, they should always retain uh, the numerology. <coughs> I mean, it is true that it's equivalent to 90 feet high by 9 feet wide, and when I'm preaching it, I should say that to you. I shouldn't expect you to know necessarily what a cubit is. But at the same time, in a translation, it should retain the numbers, 60 cubits by 6, because we're meant to notice that. You'll notice that the great image that was set up by the second beast in Revelation 13 uh, is identifiable numerically. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is 666. This number of man and humanism and the exaltation of man is there in the Bible from the beginning through to the end. We'll look at that, God willing, as we move on in the book of Daniel. So again, all the time, we see the powers of the state and the power of man. Now, I suppose it's an amazing thing how this comes to be accepted. How is it that a people will just fall down and worship an image? Well, I think the first thing to be stressed is that we all recognize the absolute. Augustine famously once said that there is a a restlessness in our heart that will remain there until we find rest in God. There's another way of putting that. We, I think, um, of course, Richard Dawkins spoke about a religious gene. In a funny kind of way, he's not far off the mark. Um, we are a religious people. Of course we are. We were created by God in his own image and in his own likeness. There is something in us that wants and needs to worship. Sadly, now there is something in us that wants to be worshipped. But fundamentally, there is something in us that needs to worship. And we need the absolute and we crave it. We must bow down before something. In chapter 1, the true God was brought down um, to be relative to the rest. Here, something, man, is elevated to the place of God. And um, we have to watch that. 
There's a space in your heart. There's a craving to worship. Who occupies it? Who occupies it? The second thing is that unless the state possesses great power, it will use certain means to enslave you. I mentioned a while back the writer who said that providing we had enough money and sexual freedom, we'll sell everything else. We have to watch that too. It's interesting hearing politicians sometimes debate the question of the internet and the unfettered access to all kinds of pornography and how reluctant people are to bite that bullet. Why is that? Why are people so reluctant to bite that bullet? Well, because that's a freedom that uh, as long as people have it, like I said, they'll sell anything for it. But that'll probably be what kills us all as a people. The only thing that's reckoned to be taboo on it is rape and pedophilia. It'll soon become the channel through which these things are enjoyed by millions. Because we can't check it. And we can't check it because we won't check it. That's the problem, you see. Man is destroying himself. He always has. You're destroying yourself. When you rip God out of your life, you think you can just go on. But you can't. You, see. you can't. You're killing yourself. You're killing yourself. And a society without God is killing itself. And a government that takes God out of the heart of its working is killing itself too. Our true liberty lies in God and his law. That was the dignity of our nation once. God was at her heart and his law ruled our lawgivers. And the same is true of ourselves. What makes a dignified man and woman, a man and woman of real character and substance, is that God is at the heart of their lives. Take God out and everything eventually corrodes. Takes time, but it eventually corrodes and it's a shocking thing. It's sad that the Nebuchadnezzar, who we find in, at the close of chapter 2, bowing prostrate before Daniel, has come to this. But that's the heart of man. The amazing thing is that God doesn't give up on him. Uh, We'll see that later in this chapter and in chapter 4. In fact, I think by the end of chapter 4, we'll see that Daniel was a converted, uh, sorry, that Nebuchadnezzar was a converted man. But don't you presume on God coming back to you each time you refuse to drift away from God? Don't presume on God coming back to you. I mean, for every person who, like Nebuchadnezzar, eventually comes to a saving knowledge of God, there is a person like King Herod, who asked questions of a Christ who remained silent because Herod had had his day. You would think Christ would never stay silent when a question was asked of him, but he did because Herod had had his day. Um, I'll close with this. You'll notice that when he's getting the people to bow down in front of the image, there's a bit of carrot and stick The orchestras there, which was probably playing all day, playing music appropriately, 
Karl Marx, of course, uh, called religion the opiate of the people. Well, of course, music uh, very often can be used to make people do anything if you're clever enough with it. And there's always the smoking furnace, which was in all probability visible. When the decree is read, it's always useful to be able to look and to see the burning fiery furnace. There's a mixture of persuasion and coercion. There's no place for dissenters, you see. No place for a dissenter. But there's no real expectation for one either. I mean, it's all been managed, choreographed, well staged, and when the particular part of the day comes and the orchestra strikes up, they expect all the government delegates to fall. Long live the supreme state. Long live the head of gold. Long live the king. Long live man. And long live our humanistic kingdoms. Let them feed us and clothe us and protect us and give us our liberties. Uh, None of them reckoned on the three Jewish men just recently promoted to government. Let's pray. Our gracious God, help us to recognize true freedom and to value it. Help us to be thankful for all that we've enjoyed, a legacy of hundreds of years, purchased for us often by blood. And we pray to value these things in case we lose them. Give our own leaders in government a sense of being servants of God and accountable to you. We are conscious that governments are increasingly taking power to themselves and providing the given of gold to the people. Then the people seem to blindly follow them. We pray to be wary of states or a conglomeration of states that arrogate more and more power to themselves. Help us to be wary of man whose breath is in his nostrils. And help us, Lord, to be wary of ourselves, for we easily worship ourselves. O lead us to Christ, the Son of God, to that kingdom which knows no bounds. In his name we pray. Amen. Our last psalm is Psalm 82 on page 110. And we sing to the tune Stuttgart. And this is addressed, or, um, and God is addressing uh, judges and rulers in human governments who are abusing power, as people always do when they're godless. God stands in the great assembly judging gods who gather there. So whenever the executive or the judiciary gather, God is gathering with them. And he questions them, how long will you clear the wicked with the judgments you declare, vindicate the weak and orphans, and the rights of those oppressed, save the weak, support the needy from the wicked, give them rest. They are void of understanding, no right judgment can they make. 
On they walk in utter darkness, all of earth's foundations shake. You are gods, so I address them. You are sons of God, most high. But like mortal men, you'll perish, and like other rulers, die. Rise, O God, and come in judgment. Justice for the earth command. For you hold as your possession every race and every land. We'll stand to sing. Just before we receive God's benediction, uh, I should have just mentioned to you that the tea and coffee is upstairs uh, today. That's just because of uh, crowding difficulties downstairs, so it's upstairs. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen.